0: Greetings and welcome to an Odyssey into If the spirit moves you, would you be kind enough to follow, like, share, and comment on this podcast, as I'm your grateful host, Dan Riley. Many people have heard the phrase, The Hero's Journey. It was popularized by the late professor of literature and author, Joseph Campbell. In his magnus opus, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, he explored the archetypal hero shared by all the world's mythologies. Here is his description. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. Of course, boons would be another word for blessings. Old Campbell's theory of a monomyth has been widely panned by the folklorists and other intellectual elites. But in my mind, truth has a supreme privilege. It demands belief. And I don't know a serious student of life who does not identify with the notion of a hero's journey. Whether it be Campbell's version or that of Pythagoras or Epictetus or Oscar Icazo's, there is a discernible template that can guide us on our own mysterious journeys. After extensive study of the world's mythologies, Campbell identified 17 universal stages a hero goes through on their journey. But with the help of the aforementioned, I think we can reduce the stages to these five. Before I list them, if you haven't yet surmised, I firmly believe that we are all potential heroes, each on their own journey. Stage 1. The Calling The call to an adventure. Each hero receives a call to their unique task. Another word for this might be passion. The inner knowing you were born to do something specific. Number two, the struggle. All the challenges, the setbacks, the obstacles, or the existential crises one begins to go through. Life tests whether the passion is true or spurious. At this stage, the hero begins to emerge. Stage three, the test of will, the temptations, questioning, is the journey really worth it? Here, an antagonist typically shows up in the form of person or persons, circumstances or events. The devil tests the hero's resolve. Stage four, the arrival, and it's a reward. The hero has arrived. She has met every challenge, overcome the devil's temptations, and found her way clear to the other side. The journey is almost complete. Stage five, the last stage is the transformation. Our hero returns from the journey a different person. Or as T.S. Eliot said, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Every now and then, nature unleashes extraordinary forces, sometimes in the form of people. It's as if nature is periodically reminding us, all of us, of the latent hero within. Today, I want to talk about two of these extraordinary forces. The first is Ben Hogan. I apologize to you non-golfers. Please stay with me. The story of Hogan I'm going to tell transcends golf. In the golfing world, the consensus is that Ben Hogan had the greatest golf swing of all time. It certainly was the most analyzed by far. And even today, he is held out as the gold standard for how any athlete in any sport should approach practice and personal discipline. But the road to that swing was long, desolate, and at times tragic. Hogan was the youngest of three children born in a small Texas town in 1912. The family was dirt poor. His father, with a gun, committed suicide right in front of a nine-year-old Hogan. After their father's death, all the Hogan children had to find work to keep the family afloat. Young Ben sold newspapers at the train station after school. At 11 years old, a friend got him a job as a caddy at a nearby golf course, Glen Garden Country Club. It was there that Hogan found the passion of his life. As a senior in high school, he dropped out and became a professional golfer in 1930. But it wasn't until 1940 when he won his first tournament. It took him 10 years to get that first victory. When it came to golf, Hogan was not a natural. He practiced 12 hours a day, not for a single season or just for a few years, but for most days of a career that spanned almost 40 years. No one knows for sure how many golf balls he hit over his lifetime some say over 10 million. Who knows the number? We just know it was staggering. After that first victory, many more followed over the next nine years, but they were intermittent. Hogan's golf career was put on hold when he served as an army officer for three years during World War II. But back on the tour in 1949 at 37 years old, he was getting a bit fatigued and decided to leave the tour, which at the time was in Southern California, and drive back home to Texas for some rest. It was on that drive, an early February morning on Highway 80 in Texas, when through the fog Hogan saw the headlights of an 18-wheeler heading straight for him. As he veered the car right, out of seemingly nowhere came another pair of headlights, A Greyhound bus attempting to pass the 18-wheeler slammed head-on into Hogan's car. This was a time before seatbelts when chivalry was alive and well. Hogan instinctively lunged over to the passenger side to shield his wife Valerie. That move saved his life. The collision impact had driven the engine and steering column through the driver's seat and into the back seat of Hogan's car. His life was saved, but he didn't escape without serious injury. Hogan suffered a fractured pelvis, a fractured shoulder, multiple fractured ribs, and a shattered ankle. For two hours, he laid by the side of the road in shock as they waited for an ambulance. For the next 30 days, Hogan laid immobile, encased in plaster from head to toe. A blood clot formed in his leg and began a dangerous journey north. With Hogan nearly dead his friends flew, flew him down to New Orleans in an air force bomber so that a famed surgeon could stop the blood clot from moving to his heart The surgeon successfully tied off the vena which funnels blood into the right atrium of the heart Hogan survived About a month later he was home and began the arduous process of learning to walk again his weight was down to about 95 pounds It was a foregone conclusion that Hogan would never play golf again. The question was, how impaired would his gait be? Would he need a cane? Would he need a walker? That wasn't Hogan's question, however. His only question was, how long it would be till he played golf again. His rehabilitation started by trying to walk across just one room. It took weeks in agony to do just that. He graduated to multiple rooms, then out back then around the neighborhood and on went this incremental rehabilitation. He then moved to the golf course and walked a few hundred yards with a cane, then a few more hundred without a cane. In January of 1950, less than one year from his near-fatal accident, Hogan confounded all the critics and entered the Los Angeles Open. Again, for non-golfers, a pro golf competition is normally a four-day event. The winner is the one with the lowest cumulative score for those four days. In Hogan's day, a tie meant not just a few playoff holes, but an entire fifth round of golf. On day one of the LA Open, Hogan shot a 73, just okay, followed by three straight 69s on day two, three, and four. This tied him for the lead. He had to play another entire round of golf, 18 more holes, the following day against Sammy Snead. An exhausted Hogan loss, but found renewed belief in himself. Hogan, now more than a preeminent golfer, he had become an inspiration to people all over the world that suffered from handicaps. Ever since his accident, letters of support, letters of testimonials, how people had overcome their own infirmities as a result of Hogan's inspiration, deluged his office and his home. Once just an introverted, selfish golfer, Hogan now felt he was playing for legions of people. He didn't just want to win for himself. He wanted to boost the morale of his newfound followers, golfers and non-golfers alike. For that, in his mind, he had to win another major tournament. He set his sights on the U.S. Open to be held in June, six months after his loss in Los Angeles. The site of this Open was a very hot and humid Ardmore, Pennsylvania, The format, 18 holes on Thursday, 18 on Friday, two rounds of golf on Saturday, 18 holes in the morning, and another 18 in the afternoon. In the event of a tie, an 18-hole playoff would be played on Sunday. Each round of golf required the player to walk over four miles. Since the accident, not only were Hogan's legs in constant pain, but both had very poor circulation. So, before every round of golf, they were heavily wrapped from his crotch to his ankles to, co- to control the swelling. The first round, Hogan shot a 72, eight strokes behind the leader. On Friday, the second round, his limp was pronounced and noticeable for all to see, but he was able to shoot a 69 and get within two strokes of the leader. On the way back to the hotel that night, Hogan was nauseous, dizzy, and running of fever. When they arrived, his wife needed to assist him into a bath where he soaked his swollen legs for hours. Saturday was brutal. He had to walk almost nine miles on those injured legs. The morning round he shot a 72, only one off the lead now. The afternoon round started well. A huge gallery was now following Hogan. He was feeding off their energy. A prominent golf writer described his swing as a machine stamping out bottle caps. Those millions of practice golf swings were proving their worth. But by the back nine of that final round, Hogan became weary. After teeing off in the 10th hole, he felt a knife-like spasm shoot through his left leg. For a few seconds, he could no longer walk. The pain was no longer bearable. After playing the 13th hole, Hogan was going to quit. But as the story goes, while limping off the 13th green, moving toward the official, he thought of the letters he'd received and just how far he had come. He couldn't quit. Drenched in sweat both from the pain and the weather, somehow Hogan parred 14. He bogeyed 15 and 17, and on the tee at the last hole, an official told him all he had to do was par 18 and he'd be tied for the lead. At that moment, he felt both agony and ecstasy. He was thrilled to be in a position to win the Open, but the torture of another day walking five miles. His drive on 18 split the fairway like a bolt of lightning. The crowd was going crazy. His left leg was beyond pain now. It was practically numb. His body felt radioactive. Pain was emanating from everywhere. He couldn't conceive of 18 more holes the next day but he couldn't tank the tournament either. He had a perfect approach shot on the 18th green and two-putted for par. Ben Hogan was tied for the lead in the U.S. Open. A playoff with Mangrum and Fazio would begin the next morning. Pure exhaustion caused Hogan to sleep like a baby that night, and the golf gods must have attended him. The pain and swelling in his legs had all but disappeared by morning. Hogan played that playoff round like the Hogan of old. He shot a 69 and won the 1950 U.S. Open by four strokes. Eighteen months after a nearly fatal car accident, one in which all the doctors told Hogan he'd be lucky to walk unassisted again, let alone play golf, he won golf's most cherished prize, the United States Open. Although he would go on to win many more golf tournaments in a career that would last until he was almost 60 years old, a hero's journey was completed on that fateful June Sunday in Pennsylvania. Hogan's competitive golf days had long been over, but at the age of 75 he could still be seen daily hitting golf balls at his club in Texas. Still searching for that perfect swing. Today, 24 years after his death, Hogan is still golf's preeminent hero. I was going to talk about one other person during this podcast, but Hogan's story lasted too long, so I think I'll save her story, that's right, her story for next week. Stay tuned. It's fascinating and equally inspiring. As for the rest of us and the hero's journey, I can't believe it's just for some of us. Maybe life presents us all an opportunity to make a hero's journey. Maybe it gives us several opportunities. Maybe endless opportunities. Who knows? I guess that's for each of us to decide. So, for my part, that's all there is. Except for this: please follow, like, share, and comment on this podcast. This is Dan Riley taking you on an odyssey into oratory. Until next time, throw off those bones, sail away from the sea, catch the trade winds in your sail. We're on the move.